0: Hi podcast listeners, it's your host Brad Kearns and we hope you're enjoying the varied format that we've introduced recently to the Primal Blueprint podcast channel. Uh, Especially I'm really enjoying the narrated Mark's Daily Apple posts because sometimes I have more time to listen when I'm out exercising or driving and getting a little behind with my reading with so many other things to read. Like your great questions and comments about the podcast. So we're doing our best. We have some really exciting, interesting guests lined up in the future, including uh, regular sessions with Mark for the Q&A that's been backing up. And also we're going to have Dr. Kate Shanahan from the Primal Advantage as a regular occurring guest for Q&A for medical related questions and all the things that she's doing with her Primal Advantage metabolic consulting program. So go to blog.primalblueprint.com and you can use the recording device to record your question or, of course, you can email a question to us anytime also, info at primalblueprint.com. So today's podcast, today's entry, is a little bit outside of the normal template again. You might have noticed the duration of the recording is quite lengthy. And what I'm going to do today is give you a comprehensive tour through the primal blueprint expert certification course material so we're going to follow the eight key concepts and the five action items of the primal blueprint 21 day transformation book so it's a great listen if you're interested in the cert and what exactly is presented in the course material online or if you just wanted to get a comprehensive discussion of all the points and attributes in the eight key concepts and five action items so it's a detailed journey through the primal blueprint philosophy and all the practical tips we offer in the 21 day transformation process as well as a detailed look at the certification course including the examination so you can get a feel for how difficult these tests are what kind of material we're asking for and hopefully have all the information you need to take the plunge and participate in this extremely popular program that we only launched in August and already we've been inundated with signups and questions and hence the uh, impetus to record this podcast on the eight key concepts, and five action items. So we're going to plunge right in with the discussion and going right through the course material. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Any other questions about the certification course, you can read our FAQs online, call us, or email us at the office. Key concept number one, yes, you really can reprogram your genes. And the main essence of this one is to get that point across that genes are more than fixed heritable traits that we largely feel like we have no control over. In some cases, it's true uh, with your hair and eye color and even predispositions to personality traits like shyness, uh, predispositions to alcoholism, flat feet, (laughs) all kinds of things like that. But generally, we have to expand our notion of what genes are and what they do. And I appreciate harping on this point because even today, when you hear about people that have health misfortunes, disease diagnoses, uh, it often comes up, there's some genetic reference that it was alluding to the idea that it was out of their hands. And people just fail to fully appreciate the distinction between genetic predispositions passed down from your familial genes, from mom and dad and your ancestors, and the ability to alter those by sending different environmental signals uh, through eating and exercise. And you know, these are the main uh, fundamental points of the primal blueprint philosophy that Marx communicated in so many ways for so many years. But I do think it's important to, uh, first of all, not to discount familial predispositions, because if you are predisposed to obesity, diabetes, heart disease, all kinds of cancers, whatever, um, those are significant and relevant. It means you're going to have worse luck than the next person who's not predisposed to those things. But as Dr. Kate Shanahan said in a recent Primal Blueprint podcast, your predispositions mainly determine what kind of bad luck you will have, when you send the wrong signals to your genes. So once that point gets across again, just like it has in the books, we get into a little bit of science in this module where we talk about the DNA process of transcription and translation and how gene expression actually works. Uh, Those of you familiar with biology or remembering it from school lessons, uh, this is known as the central dogma of molecular biology, where information flows from the DNA inside of a cell to the RNA, which is located in the nucleus as well, and the RNA uh, sends a message out to ribosome, which is the protein-making machinery in your cells. Ribosome translate the information that was contained in that RNA and makes specific proteins. And all those proteins are the mechanisms of how our body operates. Whether it's uh, retinal cells so that you can see, or muscle cells to build up in response to um, exercise, a workout, lifting weights, whatever. So this is getting in a little bit science and it's probably one of the uh, most science-y aspects of the course. It's not a lengthy description of this and there's nice drawings so you can get the big picture overview of how DNA transcribes to RNA. RNA interacts with ribosome and makes the proteins that Uh, are the building blocks of all the organs and systems in your body and then we talk about how things can interfere with the uh, healthy or the optimal gene expression process things like systemic inflammation which is a undesirable inflammatory response in contrast to a desirable inflammatory response in the body for example Um, your body becoming inflamed in response to workout stimulation. You're going to want to be highly inflamed in your muscles and joints, your respiration, your heart rate. Everything wants to be inflamed for you to deliver a peak performance fitness effort. Uh, Same thing with a, a bee sting the area around the wound becomes inflamed because that's a natural part of the healing process and also a way for the body to contain the toxins into the injured area. So those are desirable examples of inflammation. And in contrast with systemic inflammation coming from, for example, excess insulin production in the diet, uh, those are things that interfere with long-term health Uh, because your body's fighting valiantly to try to withstand the adverse gene expression messages sent by poor eating habits, poor lifestyle habits, excessive exercise, insufficient sleep, and so forth. So actually, Module 1 is pretty short in comparison to the others. Um, It gets a little bit technical and challenging. And regarding the exam... The exam is only 20 questions. That's the shortest exam of all the modules, so we got 10 multiple choice and 10 true-false, and we do get back into uh, making sure you have a basic understanding of the science and um, which, which uh, order that the DNA and the RNA and the ribosome process works, um, some basic questions about familial predispositions and the difference between fixed heritable traits and messages that you send uh, your genes on a daily basis, on an every-moment basis. So not a very difficult exam, pretty short, and getting you right into module number two, the clues to optimal gene expression are found in evolution. And this is a wonderful module because we go into great detail about the amazing Journey of humans to populate all corners of the earth, uh, starting from their origins, first appearance of modern Homo sapiens 160,000 years ago in East Africa, and when a very, very small group of adventurous humans left the East African area, left the African continent to begin ultimately. Uh, the population of all corners of the globe, starting 160,000 years ago and finally culminating when we got down to the bottom of South America, which occurred around 12,500 years ago. But first, we take you through a nice overview of each of the 10 primal blueprint lifestyle laws. Eat plants and animals, avoid poisonous things, move frequently at a slow pace, lift heavy things, sprint once in a while, get adequate sleep play get adequate sunlight avoid stupid mistakes and use your brain and then we get into uh the amazing journey of human evolution starting from Uh, our pre-human ancestors, the hominids, around 7 million years ago, and then splitting at around 2.5 million years ago into Homo erectus. And then finally, 160,000 years ago, the Homo sapiens appeared and had this amazing journey across the globe. So we get into some of the fits and starts and the actual facts, because it is kind of important to um, have these in your background, even though it's not directly related to what you're going to tell your client what to eat for lunch. It's a really great education, and there's some links like to Stephen Oppenheimer's amazing interactive website, which is called Journey of Mankind, and it details with each click of the button uh, another step in the total migratory process. Uh, and also the setbacks and and uh, stopping points for ice ages and things of that nature, but eventually culminating with humans populating every corner of the globe. We also get into, in this module, some of the misconceptions about evolution and the commonly heard refrain these days that humans are still evolving, so that's a way to attack the primal paleo-dietary uh, philosophy because we are continue to adapt to uh, things in our environment. And so we just try to distinguish between what genetic drift is, which is more um, genetic diversity. And this genetic diversity, they call them single nucleotide polymorphisms, SNPs or SNPs, um, genetic differences that come up, variations. These are more likely due to the tremendous explosion in human population across the globe, the size of humanity, rather than true survival of the fittest mutation and natural selection adaptations in the realm of uh, Darwin's survival of the fittest, because selection pressure on humans essentially ended... With the advent of civilization around 10,000 years ago. And those main selection pressures throughout human history, throughout that 2.5 million year timeline when Homo erectus first rose, the main pressures were starvation and predator danger. And that's why we developed the ability to stand up on two legs, dissipate heat through our body so we could be better at persistence hunting, um, to lift heavy things, to sprint, to eat the foods that promote optimal gene expression. And all those things were driven. By survival of the fittest selection pressure. So now, with the advent of civilization, we have an entirely different uh, perspective, a different paradigm to operate in. And mainly, uh, the main distinction to think about is that now we're compelled to consider the example of our ancestors and how they lived in order to inform healthy lifestyle choices today because there is no true evolutionary penalty for sitting on your butt on the couch all day and living off dr pepper cheetos and multiplayer online video games we also detail uh, the common misconceptions about life expectancy because another of the main criticisms that Grok gets, that our hunter-gatherer ancestors get, is that their, oh, their lifestyles were so short. And in fact, human life expectancy during that Paleolithic era, 2.5 million years ago to around 10,000 years ago, when we transferred into uh, the Neolithic, the farming, the life expectancy for humans was around 33. And that factored in all the hazards of infant mortality and predator danger and the fact that if you fell and scraped your knee in primal times, you could easily get a fatal infection without medical care and without sanitation. Um, however, if a human was able to overcome those primitive hazards and reach puberty, life expectancy actually increased to age thirty-nine, and if one could live till thirty-nine back in primal times, they had a life expectancy of fifty-four. Furthermore, And even in modern day hunter-gatherers that have no modern intervention of any kind, it's not uncommon to see primitive hunter-gatherer humans living 70 or 80 years in exceptional health. And obviously the hunter-gatherer has to be in exceptional health all the time because they're subject to selection pressure. They can't be nursing injuries or being uh, a drag on the clan that uh, can't sustain themselves because that's not possible uh, in primitive conditions. So we get into that detail um, and it puts a good perspective for people that uh, disparge out of hand the hunter-gatherer example. And in fact, another interesting note is when civilization Occurred, life expectancy for humans actually dropped steadily, uh, mostly due to hygiene problems, warfare, and uh, malnutrition, things that civilized humans had to deal with and hunter gatherers did not have to deal with. There's a great video here in the, in the module from Jane Calmont, who's the oldest human on record. She lived to be 122 years old, and the video. Uh, was taken when she was 119 and she's very sharp and has a lot of spunk and it's in there to give us a little bit of pause when we have this frame of reference of life expectancy in america or japan and japan has uh, 84 years old and they're one of the oldest countries and all these things are still sort of having to weather the adverse lifestyle practices of civilization that we kind of take for granted and so the idea here is that living primarily and doing the best that you can within the confines and limitations of modern life but also taking advantage of all the medical care and the health advances and the knowledge that we have in modern life we might be able to reframe our perspective on aging to think that there's no reason why we can't go till ultimate human lifespan, which is around 120 years. Yes, your organs are probably going to wear out when you're around 120, but 80 is in, in that perspective, it's sort of, uh, it's an abomination to, to go only two thirds of your potential because of adverse lifestyle practices. So. Anyway, we go through this kind of thing. We talk about modern aging and how it really is an acceleration of the natural human aging process due to adverse lifestyle practices. And then we're set up to go to a pretty fun exam in module two. So the Module 2 exam has 33 questions, mix of multiple choice, true, false, and we throw in a few details about the human migratory patterns and some of the timelines, so it is a good idea to take notes and get some of those facts right. Uh, just because it, it is super important. I mean, it might seem like a random fact that the first appearance of the modern genetically identical Homo sapiens came 160,000 years ago in East Africa. But if you don't know it or you have a, only a vague sense, uh, it's, it's not as strong as a knowledge base. Um, some of the stuff might be um, a little more challenging when asking what age or what year did we finally colonize all of North and South America. But again, if you read the module carefully, take some notes on the key facts, you'll have some of these numbers uh, at the tip of your tongue when you're um, carrying forward and and talking about primal living. Oh, and a uh, complaint came through recently that one of the questions uh, possibly was pertaining more to information contained in a previous module than in the module that it was found at. And as long as it's a previous module, we're not going to uh, lose any sleep over that. So <laughs> the the exam might not be perfect. We might throw in a few uh, simple questions that are testing your general knowledge. But overall, there's not going to be any uh, curveballs coming in where... You're asking, uh, we're asking you to know something that was not contained directly in the module. So that was another frequently asked question: Was, um, do I have to study the other materials to to excel on this exam? And the answer is no. The really the online course and exam is going straight into the material contained in the modules. So, module three, key concept number three from the book your body prefers burning fat over carbohydrates. This is one of the more lengthy modules, and this is really where um, all kinds of information is thrown in relating to that central point and the central goal of living primarily, and that is to become a fat-burning beast and transition out of the carbohydrate-dependency cycle that is so common Um, in modern society due to a high insulin producing diet and briefly when you're in that carbohydrate dependency cycle you're messing up all kinds of hormones relating to appetite calorie storage satiety and so it comes way beyond um, the calories in the, the calories in calories out oversimplification of weight management and into more of a hormonal and a metabolic challenge to optimize your genetic function so that you can be a have a preference for fat burning rather than carbohydrate burning and the simple and best way to do that is to moderate your intake of carbohydrates eliminating the heavily processed carbohydrates like sugars and grains that cause regular spikes in insulin, um, regular crashes in blood sugar that prompt an increase in appetite and also overstimulate the fight or flight response because when you get an energy crash, that is a definite stressor to the body. Your body kicks into fight-or-flight survival mode, thinking that your reduced energy and foggy brain function is a life-threatening event, which it was in primal times. So when we get out of that adverse cycle of relying on external sources of calories for energy, then we can experience what it is truly like to live primally and effortlessly regulate body fat. So uh, the modules, they go on with, as you probably know, there's the video overview from Mark, there's the quick facts, which um, will range from five to 10 to maybe 12 quick facts that try to summarize the material you're about to read in length. And then the rest of the text is organized into what we're calling affirmations. So it's little discussion subjects. So if you're looking at the affirmations in module three, the first one is talking about the standard American diet, the drawbacks of carbohydrate dependency. Here's another affirmation called fuel partitioning. And that's a discussion of how we burn a mixture of different fuels at different times, such as fatty acids, such as glucose from ingested carbohydrates, and such as ketones when blood glucose levels are low and we're needing an alternative source of something to burn light glucose. Um, so then we get into some A little bit of science coming in here with discussions about glucose and how glucose requirements are in the body and the brain and also the damage that comes from a long-term pattern of having too much glucose in your bloodstream from adverse dietary practices and it's called glycation and glycation is when the excess glucose molecules bind with the protein molecules in your body and as we learned in module one the protein molecules are the building blocks of every organ and system in the body glucose when it's ingested and there's too much of it in your bloodstream which is toxic as any diabetic knows when they don't get their insulin shot they go into shock and have a severe health condition so we want to get rid of that glucose quickly that's what insulin does it transports it into storage but also um, these glucose molecules attach to protein and the process of glycation occurs and as dr kate points out um, on some of her discussions these glucose molecules, just like the sugar that they originated from, are literally sticky. So the sugary or starchy foods that you ingest that were sticky when your fingers got stuck on the, uh, the lid of the soft drink are going to be sticky inside your bloodstream and bind with important structural protein molecules that then go ahead and wreak havoc on normal function and basically... It's the essence of the aging process to compromise the healthy function of all your tissues, organs, and systems. Glycation triggers an inflammatory process that eventually causes your tissues to become stiff and inelastic. One of the best examples or most most obvious examples is wrinkled skin that's commonly associated with aging. And the oxidation and inflammation process of heart disease inside your body is the same process at work where this inflammation occurs and causes all kinds of damage. So we get into things called advanced glycation end products, AGEs, RAGEs, which are receptors for advanced glycation end products, and just learning how destructive it is to have a sugar dependency diet, a carbohydrate dependency diet. Then going into the good news and how wonderful it is to be fat adapted, to have fat as your primary fuel source, not only from stored depots when food supplies are inconsistent as they have been for 2.5 million years, but also from a diet that trends more into predominantly fat. And of course... You have to have the good fats, not the bad fats. So today we consume an excess of polyunsaturated fatty acids, mainly from vegetable oils and processed products that contain these high PUFA, P-U-F-A is polyunsaturated fatty acids. So we distinguish between those, obviously the chemically altered fats, the partially hydrogenated fats, which are so health destructive. And we distinguish with the good fats, including saturated fats, the fats that are found in animal products that have been maligned for so many decades as being a central component of heart disease and now, as Gary Tobbs best describes in good calories bad calories and also his second book why we get fat with hundreds of references as to why saturated fat is absolutely not bad for you and is actually very nutritious and very healthy and critical to many basic cellular functions same with monounsaturated fats as found in macadamia nuts avocados olives olive oils things like that these have a number of health benefits and no health challenges, unlike the chemically altered fats. We get into a little bit of the hot topic of the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of dietary fats. This has been getting a lot of play lately, and we've actually been doing some more research and trying to give you the latest greatest here. So on this topic, it's often oversimplified to say, oh, your omega-6s are... Inflammatory and unhealthy, and the omega threes are anti-inflammatory. And the modern dietary ratio is wildly excessive from what our hunter-gatherers ancestors consumed. Um, But really, there's a little bit more to it than that. One element is that both omega six and omega three have anti anti anti-inflammatory and health-promoting properties. It's just that omega threes are a little more or have a stronger anti-inflammatory effect. So one of the central ideas to take away here is that you want to really make an effort to increase your intake of omega-3s. And when it comes to omega-6, perhaps the main problem or the main objection today is that many high omega-6 foods happen to be very unhealthy, such as the polyunsaturated fatty acid vegetable oils that easily uh, generate oxidative damage in the body irrespective of the fact that they're high in omega-6 so just to understand things a little further that's kind of what the cert course is all about and picking up where you might have left off with a shorter discussion in the book similarly we talk about the trans and partially hydrogenated fats and how bad those are Um, then we get into ketones and what it means to be keto-adapted, how to get to that point, the health benefits of getting good at ketone burning, and commonly... Uh, clearing up some of the common misconceptions about that especially as it relates to ketosis which ketosis literally means that the body is accumulating ketones in the bloodstream faster than they're being burned so you might be in ketosis and also not very good at burning ketones yet and so that's not a desirable position if you're trying to get good at ketone burning so we'd rather refer to it as being in a ketone burning state or a keto adapted state And henceforth, when you're testing uh, your urine with the keto sticks, the strips, it might give you um, what could be considered a false positive, such as showing high levels of ketones in your blood, but you're really not burning them. So it's much better to test with blood and get into uh, a good indication that you're actually burning ketones another way to determine your adaptability just to get a little simple and practical here is your ability to wake up in the morning and not feel hungry and continue to perform at a high level whether it's doing exercise or working without requiring any ingested calories that means that your body is highly fat adapted and very likely keto adapted as well Um, this issue comes up with athletes, people that burn a lot of calories through um, devoted fitness efforts, and there's um, some challenges here to try to be in a ketone-burning state, which, which entails uh, very low dietary carbohydrate intake, and still perform as an athlete. So generally speaking, uh, it's advised or it's a, it's a better practice for long-distance endurance athletes who are exercising at a more moderate heart rate than a high intensity glycolytic athlete, someone who's burning a lot of glucose during a very intense session. Because when you do that and then you don't replace those carbohydrates or you don't have a a good supply of carbohydrates to burn at the outset of the workout, you can quickly get yourself into a delayed recovery and diminished performance because of your extreme dietary practices. So if you're going to get into ketone burning, you want to learn the whole background, ditto for a client who's considering something like that. Um, Then another great element of this uh, module is the concept of caloric efficiency. And especially since we hear so much, even from some of the respected experts in our world, not to mention the mainstream world, the esteemed goal of speeding up your metabolism so that... You can burn more fat and look great, lose weight, maintain uh, ideal body weight. Um, And that is a little bit of a trade-off. Because when you speed up your metabolism, you are literally accelerating the aging process. If you can imagine like a bodybuilder with the giant muscles who's working so hard, burning so much energy, consuming so many calories per day and growing these massively huge muscles, this is an acceleration of the natural lifespan of the cells in the body. Cells can only divide a finite number of times and that basically um frames the process of aging in your lifespan we talk about telomeres uh, a little bit in the previous module which is markers on the ends of cells that can indicate uh, how much how much lifespan they have in them but back to caloric efficiency that's one of the main goals and this is one of mark's big talking points in recent times that a better goal than getting a fast metabolism is to become more calorically efficient to be able to sustain yourself Sustain your energy and feel totally satisfied at each meal. This is not a, a an underfeeding, uh, starvation challenge, but to go through life with as minimal calories as necessary. You are going to get an extension in your, in your lifespan. In fact, uh, caloric restriction is one of the most profound, if not the most profound, life longevity. Factors ever discovered in tests with uh, laboratory animals obviously not easy to do on humans but there is some good data with humans uh, consuming fewer calories and becoming more efficient at cell division because when the body gets an insufficient number of calories or of, of fewer calories than an overfeeding pattern which most people have been in their entire lives all of the sudden the rate of cell division slows down and cell repair is enhanced you also optimize the flow of adaptive hormones in the bloodstream, such as testosterone and human growth hormone, great for males and females, just at different levels. And these are ways that we can extend our lifespan, improve our health, and improve our immune function by becoming more calorically efficient, not requiring as many calories as we might otherwise when we're locked into a high-carbohydrate eating pattern and becoming hungry more frequently during the day due to those blood sugar drops and those insulin rushes into the bloodstream. Um, So remember if your first instinct is to say, oh, well, geez, I get to eat less food, that's, that doesn't seem promising. But the truth is, it's all about maintaining total satisfaction at each meal, eating as much as you want for the rest of your life, but not requiring that overfeeding process that happens when not only uh, locked into a high-carbohydrate dietary pattern, but also a chronic exercise pattern. So again, this module's pretty long. We're going into a little bit of science about cell mitochondria and uh, how they process oxygen and produce energy. Then we get into um, the primal blueprint carbohydrate curve and the recommended macronutrient intake levels for protein, carbohydrates, and fat with a quick little illustration of how to Easily plug in the right numbers and lose excess body fat in a month, which is really helpful for the trainer client relationship. When someone comes up and says, I want to lose four pounds this month, it's black and white right here how to do that. So, after digesting all that, maybe taking another pass through it, it's time to take one of the bigger quizzes for key concept number three. And we're going down with 37 questions um, again they're fair. They're just going back and covering the material. You might want to find some key points to take notes on. Some of these are going to be uh, in the difficult category, and some of them are going to be in the obvious category if you read the stuff and understand it. So it's a balance. You don't have to get overly stressed if you got one that stumped you. And again, if you have to go out to Google and, and learn some information, it might help. But that wasn't really our goal. Our goal was to have a fair test where you're retaining a fair amount of information and can deduce the correct answer. So in all of these examples, um, the idea is to uh, infer before the start of each question, the clause according to the text, okay? So in, in case there's um, confusion and you've heard somewhere else something different, um, that's, uh, that's not what we're all about here. Here's a couple sample questions since you've been listening this long. We'll throw you a few bones. Uh, question number 32, true or false, extra virgin olive oil is 100% monounsaturated. Okay, so we talked about olive oil being a great source of monounsaturated fatty acids. Um, they're so good for you. But also in the module uh, was a quick discussion that um, it's, most foods are a, a, a balance, uh, a composition of an assortment of different fatty acids. So in the case of olive oil, it's written right in the module. I think it says it's 84% monounsaturated, therefore it's called a monounsaturated fat, but it also has a little bit of other kinds of fats, including saturated. Whoops, missed that one. It's 78% monounsaturated, 14% saturated, and 8% polyunsaturated. That's olive oil's composition for you. And then we go to key concept number four, module number four. 80% of your body composition is determined by how you eat. And in this module, another lengthy module, some good uh, challenging information to cover here and uh, get through, understand, but especially the overriding notions like the fact that anyone with excess body fat is simply an equation of the amount of insulin you produce in your diet combined with your familial predisposition to store excess body fat. So, Reaching and maintaining ideal body composition is simply a matter of putting your hand on the dial and turning down the level of insulin production in your diet and therefore unlocking your ability to burn more stored body fat rather than rely on ingested carbohydrates for all your energy, just picking up the themes from the previous modules. Um, so as we go into the affirmations here, we talk in detail about insulin's role in all kinds of hormonal and metabolic functions, why it's known as the master hormone, because it facilitates the transport of nutrients and hormones to target organs and storage depots all over the body. So when your insulin mechanisms are working well, uh, you're, you're able to repair and restore replenish muscle tissue muscle glycogen uh, your hormones work well uh, things like your thyroid hormones your sex hormones everything is working as intended and nutrients are being delivered to target organs and cells throughout the body and it's only when we consume the standard american diet of wildly excessive insulin production, standard Western diet for you international listeners, that's when things get thrown off. And insulin has a prominent role in problems such as related to thyroid function, not converting enough thyroid hormone because too much insulin in the bloodstream is transporting it out of the bloodstream. Similarly, um, there's a lot of talk about anti-aging and sex hormone treatment. And some of that, some of that dysregulation that low testosterone condition that's so common with aging males can be exacerbated by a dietary pattern of excess insulin production which inhibits the delivery of testosterone through target organs Uh, we talk about how important insulin is especially in the growth phases of your life such as when you're pregnant or through puberty insulin is very important um, and also in higher levels than uh, other times of life, very important to stimulate the process of growth through agents like insulin growth factor and epithelial growth factors. So at certain times, it's great to have high insulin production, high growth factors in the bloodstream, but generally speaking, uh, as, a, as a normal adult function, these kind of things will accelerate aging if you produce too much insulin and divide your cells too quickly. Um, So we're talking through uh, how insulin works in the digestive process, how it's related to fat storage and and bringing triglyceride out of the bloodstream into uh, body fat storage depots and the dysfunction that occurs when your insulin production is too high um, and in the process refuting or expanding the perspective of the oversimplified calories in calories out equation to realize that more than calories in calories out more than balancing the burning of calories through workouts and the control of your portion sizes it's more about optimizing your hormones uh, in order to get into a Fat preferential pattern being fat adapted and keto adapted rather than carbohydrate dependent. We talk about, I mentioned briefly covering the other module, insulin's role in triggering the fight or flight response. So when you consume a high carbohydrate meal and get that blood glucose spike and then the consequent insulin surge into the bloodstream, then you get the sugar crash and your body perceives that as a stressful event and in many cases will commence the process known as gluconeogenesis, and that is the process of converting amino acids into glucose for quick energy. If you're in a carbohydrate dependency cycle and you do this often, you will find that your hard-earned lean muscle tissue will be broken down into glucose to provide energy in the absence of um, quick consumption of dietary calories when you have those sugar crashes so we want to preserve and respect that fight-or-flight response as much as possible for the times when we really need it and call upon it infrequently and for brief periods such as during a sprint workout during a high intensity strength training session and not have it happen in conjunction with meals so getting out of that high carbohydrate high insulin production and high cortisol production—the fight or flight hormone—that occurs when you get these blood sugar drops. Then we discuss the role of alcohol on body composition and uh, fat reduction attempts being that alcohol is known as a source of empty calories, common knowledge, but also uh, its characteristics as being the first to burn calorie source, which means when you ingest alcohol calories, seven calories per gram in the form of ethanol, your body puts all the other uh, metabolic processes, calorie burning processes on hold while you process through the alcohol in your system first. So what this means is alcohol can have a lipogenic effect, especially when you ingest carbs in conjunction with alcohol, meaning that it'll make those carbohydrates more likely to be converted and stored as fat because they have been consumed in the presence of alcohol. Furthermore, alcohol has an effect of lowering cortisol levels, which can cause sugar cravings, can cause a reduction in blood glucose levels, and the old adage that alcohol causes the munchies is actually literally true with the metabolic effects of alcohol upon ingestion. So, and this is actually a, um, a clarification or a more detailed uh, discussion of the typical primal stance on alcohol where we've called it a sensible indulgence and recommended consuming red wine as the preferred choice over things like beer which are made with gluten um, or mixed drinks which of course with the sugar and the alcohol together uh, can have a a worse effect on uh, body composition fat reduction goals. So the CERT offers a much more comprehensive take than we've ever discussed before. And I guess you could say a more critical view of alcohol, especially in terms of relating to reducing excess body fat. So it's another example of going a little deeper in the CERT, getting a little further understanding than just taking that free pass uh, to drink red wine because you read it in passing in one of the books or blog posts. Um, And of course, with the so many references to cortisol and the fight or flight response, we spend a long time talking about that hormone and the critical role that cortisol plays, not only in the fight or flight response, but as a uh, important regulatory agent for things like blood sugar levels and energy levels. Basically, your ability to handle stress is highly predicated on having a healthy cortisol and adrenal hormone system so overproducing cortisol as a consequence of overly stressful lifestyle patterns insufficient sleep a high insulin producing high carbohydrate diet kicking in that fight or flight response over and over and of course doing chronic exercise either chronic cardio or chronic strength training where you're stimulating cortisol hormone to elevate to help you perform the workout successfully which is great but then you're getting up again the very next day doing it again also staying up too late working on your studies or your work matters um, and basically burning the candle on both ends so cortisol's effect on the stress response and also getting in a little bit of detail if you're familiar with Hans sale who's considered the godfather of modern stress research and what stress really is. There's three components of stress. There's the stimulus, the environmental stimulus or the stressor that you encounter. There's your perception of the stimulus, which is very important. Um, Quick example, if you're called upon to speak publicly in front of a large audience, that could trigger An intense stress response in many people. But if you're a professional speaker and this is your 79th city in 80 days and you're old hat at it, it might not register any stress response because your perception of the stimulus, in this case speaking in front of a large audience, is different than someone who's a novice and filled with fear as soon as their name is called to walk up to the podium. So the final component of stress after the stimulus the individual's perception of that stimulus and then our response to the stimulus on a biochemical level and that's where the cortisol comes in and the other hormonal uh, effects and metabolic effects that occur in response to all manner of environmental stress and one important takeaway point here is that stress we commonly refer to it in a negative context but stress is really any form of stimulation it can be positive or negative negative. And if you've ever seen those stress scoreboard uh, quizzes you can take, um, one of the most stressful events in a person's life is getting married, the wedding day. Of course, that's a positive experience, or hopefully it's a positive day, fun day, exciting, but it's still very highly stressful because it's such a big deal. Um, similarly, a lot of people use exercise, use their workouts as a an outlet to cope with or to balance all the regular everyday stresses of working in an office commuting spending all that time sitting down arguing with your boss or having uh, any kind of other negative interpersonal relationships and then you go out and bust out a workout to uh, to get balanced Uh, But on a biochemical level, on on a biological level, the stress of the workout counts on the same side of the stress balance scale as all the other forms of stress. So stress, whether it's positive or negative, still has a similar hormonal response to the body, making it even much more important to balance all forms of stress with activities or things that you do that are truly resting and restorative, like sleep, uh, meditation, quiet reading, things like that. Uh, This module also gets into the exciting burgeoning topic in the primal paleo scene of gut health. And again, this is something that Um, was just mentioned in passing in Mark's books, which are several years old now, because all the research and all the attention being paid to it, just how important our gut microbiome is to our immune function our cognitive function, and our general health, including our ability to uh, burn body fat efficiently, is becoming more and more known. So we give you a little primer on what the gut microbiome is, what things are healthy and and restorative to your gut health, and which things compromise it. So um, the probiotics, the prebiotic food, the resistant starches, and just giving you a nice quick overview of that topic, um, some of the favored food recommendations like green bananas and how that works in comparison to a yellow banana especially um and as we move along and it is a little bit of a um wandering module because there's so much to cover under this umbrella and the topics will keep you lively and interested and we proceed uh next over to the popular topic of intermittent fasting as especially in terms of being a uh body fat reduction catalyst, but also the health benefits that occur when you step out of that overfeeding pattern and promoting accelerated cell division throughout your life because you're constantly well-fed, not to mention that you never experience true sensations of hunger which can really enhance your appreciation of meals and also help you become more calibrated to your true appetite level and your true satisfaction level rather than just robotically shoving food down especially when you're when you're distracted um, and eating in front of the television or eating on the go so when you engage in intermittent fasting And it can be either in a structured manner where you decide to fast for 12 hours or 24 hours, or it can be spontaneous where maybe your practice is to wake up every morning, especially if you're somewhat new to primal paleo eating, you can aspire to wake up every morning and gauge your hunger sensations and eat your first meal when you experience true hunger sensations. And as you get more and more primal adapted, fat adapted, keto adapted, you might be able to last until midday before you require any calories. But you might find when you're first starting out that you actually are hungry and feeling lightheaded or sensations that you need some energy at 9 or 9.30 or 10 a.m. And you go ahead and eat and enjoy a meal. So the intermittent fasting is a great way to just enhance your insulin sensitivity, your ability to process insulin efficiently, uh, also to accelerate body fat reduction, obviously, because you're getting by on fewer calories than robotically eating meals on a, a regular time schedule. And finally, uh, the benefits on autophagy, which is the process that cells eliminate damaged cellular matter from the body and thereby protect you against oxidative stress. So it helps protect you against free radical damage of exercise, high-stress lifestyle, insufficient sleep, by actually fasting, sort of turning that um, notion on its heels that food is always a, uh, a medicine that will help you uh, heal faster and so forth. Sometimes fasting is the, the way to go. So we have the, ac- the cute acronym called WEN which stands for when hunger ensues naturally. And that's sort of a key strategy to try this intermittent fasting stuff without the pressure of a regimented 12 or 24-hour fast. Um, We talk about that critical hormone leptin, which regulates your satiety levels and also what your body does with ingested calories, whether they're stored or burn for energy and leptin is in its essence it's a reproductive hormone and its job is to prepare the body for reproduction one of the basic elements of evolution Um, so if it's getting mixed signals or the leptin signaling is compromised by a dietary pattern of excess insulin production bad things happen such as your appetite is still turned on Uh, The effects of ghrelin are uh, dysregulated, and you overeat because you're hungry. Um, So the great quote from Gary Taubes in the book Why We Get Fat, quote, We don't get fat because we overeat. We overeat because we are getting fat. And the getting fat is a sign that your hormones and your metabolism is off kilter. Your leptin signaling has been compromised by adverse dietary practices, and therefore you have an excessive appetite, even though you have plenty of stored energy in your body that could be burned if things could be recalibrated. Um, Specific to this example are two hormones. One is known as lipoprotein lipase, and the other one is known as hormone-sensitive lipase. And lipoprotein lipase, LPL, is basically a Uh, energy storage hormones so when you have high lpl activity such as a pregnant female will have accelerated lpl activity in areas below the waist to prepare for childbirth Um, males might experience a decline in testosterone from aging and adverse lifestyle practices and in that case they experience elevated lpl levels lipoprotein lipase in their midsection causing the familiar beer-belly look due to uh, hormone dysregulation. Now, the opposite one, hormone-sensitive lipase, is an enzyme that works inside of your fat cells to mobilize stored body fat for energy. So this is something that's optimal if you're trying to uh, balance your body composition or reduce excess body fat. So you get a little primer of how those work. Um, We talk about the basics of protein and its effect on the body, um, achieving nitrogen balance, which just means that you're consuming um, an optimal amount of protein compared to how much you're burning and making sure that your body is not in a prolonged state of negative nitrogen balance or breakdown. Um, We also talk about mTOR, And that is a um, agent that regulates cell growth, cell proliferation, and you want to make sure that's optimized too, so that you don't accelerate the cellular aging process. Um, The carbohydrate curve is presented again um, with a little more detail, and also because the title of the module is "80% of your body composition is determined by what you eat," we talk about the other 20%, which, by Mark Sisson's estimation. It's about 10% of exercise is influencing your ultimate potential for optimal body composition. And also uh, sleep and stress management represent the final 10%. So we'll say 5% sleep and 5% stress management. And some of those numbers are being reconsidered as we uh, understand just how important sleep is. And we referenced some great information from... A wonderful book called Lights Out, Sleep, Sugar, and Survival, um, talking about our evolutionary patterns um, of sleep and optimal sleeping habits. And one interesting note is that um, in the summertime, when the days are longer in most latitudes, you don't need as much sleep because your body's calibrated to um, operate uh, according to the light and dark cycles. Uh, of the planet. And in the wintertime, when you have much longer nights, you should go to sleep earlier. And if you eliminate the artificial light and digital stimulation from your environment at night, you probably will get tired and feel sleepy much earlier in the winter than in the summer. Um, finally, we talk about testosterone and testosterone's role in body composition for males and for females. We talk about the role of fruit, which interestingly, because the fructose sugar in the fruit needs to be processed in the liver before being burned in the bloodstream, fruit can either be a lipogenic carb, meaning fat forming or being promoting uh, conversion into excess body fat if you're already full glycogen tank or it can be a great choice to easily replenish muscle and liver glycogen because those mechanisms happen in the liver too. We talk a little bit about optimal body composition and by the time you're done with module number four uh, you'll be ready to ace that test and maybe take a little breather before you get into some a little bit easier and shorter modules coming up. So, looking through the questions, we talk about the effects of insulin, um, the effects of alcohol, what happens when you consume alcohol and carbs together, like in a mixed drink, is one of the multiple choice questions. We talk about the factors that influence cell division, causing accelerated aging, accelerated cell division. Uh, We ask about the effects of cortisol, and we're asking you some quick point-blank statements in the true-false questions, such as True or false, fasting can cause cortisol levels to elevate. So just quick things that you hopefully retain from the text. And this test has 47 questions, so it's a whopper. And good luck to you. Let's get on to module 5 overview. Okay, key concept number 5, module number 5, grains are totally unnecessary. And we've really laid down a lot of the framework for... Primal style eating in the previous module. So this is actually a pretty a pretty brief module comparatively, but we do have to get into the effects of the anti-nutrients on your health. We've already talked about the effects of excess insulin production, um, but we talk about grains, we talk about the lectins, we talk about gluten, and we talk about phytates and how these are more prominent in whole grains than in even the refined grain, So there is really no good reason or no good justification to include grains in your diet. Uh, When you're talking about the whole grain, uh, and the three components of the whole grain are intact, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. And when you have a refined grain, what they strip out is the bran, the fibrous part, and they also strip out the germ, the oily part, to leave only the starch or the endosperm part. So that gives when you have a whole grain you have more vitamins and nutritional value than refined grain but you also have more higher levels of these objectionable anti-nutrient agents the lectins the glutens and the phytates and these are natural uh plant phytochemicals that are from nature it's just that humans have not adapted to digest these successfully because they've been so recently introduced into our food supply. So a lectin in a plant is something that the plant manufactures to defend against invaders, such as UV radiation, insect predators, and disease-producing microorganisms. So they're very important for the plant's survival, and they're found in the seeds of the plants. Um, When the human consumes these, um, many people have either a mild to severe negative reaction because of the fact that these are um, foods that are not, we have not adapted to consume. Um, there's some back and forth, and there's some counterpoints on this. That some people believe that grains are just fine and should form the centerpiece of the healthy diet especially whole grains that burn slower than a refined grain but basically when we're talking about the number one health problem of modern eating is excess insulin production when you consume either a whole grain or refined grain if you consume 200 calories in the form of carbohydrates whether it burns quickly or slowly you still have to produce a requisite amount of insulin to deal with that load in the bloodstream so whether it's a quick insulin spike to deal with that uh, rush of soda that you just drank pure sugar or whether you ate a slice of whole grain bread and have to drip insulin along over the time that the whole grain bread burns off in your bloodstream in your body it's still going to have a similarly detrimental effect on your health when it comes to Uh, excess insulin production and the oxidation inflammation patterns that uh, ensue because of that and with the lectins um, especially gluten which is found in wheat um, the big problem is leaky gut syndrome which is now finally coming into prominence as a true health problem and people are respecting the widespread effect that leaky gut has on Um, overall general health because what happens is when you consume these agents they damage the delicate brush borders in your small intestine and basically cause permeability inside your intestinal walls allowing undigested foreign particles to infiltrate into your bloodstream um, these lectin proteins that the body doesn't recognize and damage the gut and drift into your bloodstream can go into an assortment of healthy cells in your body and cause trouble. Uh, nerve cells, liver cells, even thyroid cells. You can get conditions like fibromyalgia or Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Um, these are generally treated by Western medicine in isolation. So they look at your thyroid, it's not working right. They treat thyroid, thyroid when if you have leaky gut, Um, you have not addressed the cause. You're more focused on the symptom. Very common in all kinds of other assorted ailments, especially the um, proton pump inhibitor Nexium, which is the second best-selling drug in the world. Um, Six billion in sales in 2011. It deals with stomach distress, uh, high acid levels, and those could be potentially traced to the leaky gut condition caused by consuming gluten when it comes to wheat, or glutens, uh, similar agents to gluten that are found in other types of grains, such as the avenin in oats, the zion in corn, and the orzenin in rice. So all these agents are known to promote leaky gut. And again, here's a, um, a continuum of some people are mildly sensitive to the point that they don't even realize the detrimental effect that grains have on their health, They're accustomed to normal circumstances of digestive discomfort after certain meals, bloating, gas, things like that, that they pay no mind to, and that they certainly don't connect with grain consumption. And on the other side of the spectrum are people who are extremely intolerant to grain and have an assortment of very serious health conditions that are um, strongly attributed to grain consumption. Uh, Tara Grant in The Hidden play, where she writes about the very painful skin condition hydrodonitis suprativa um, is attributed to that leaky gut caused by grain ingestion and many other conditions. The problem is when we've eaten a grain-based diet basically since birth or since we were weaned, um, we have no reference point to check on uh, how our health would improve and how these seemingly unrelated conditions might improve if we gave our time, gave a little time to heal our gut and eliminate grains from our diet. So especially when you're talking about a trainer client relationship, um, it's an important item to consider of a 21 day restriction period uh, where you completely eliminate all forms of grain foods and determine, uh, the effect on your health and in many cases hoping to see an improvement in these long time nagging conditions and if you look on Mark's daily apple on the success stories there's people writing that they ditched their CPAP their sleeping machines their asthma medications all kinds of other medications finally kick-started successful body fat reduction after uh, a long time of trying and failing because their gut wasn't working properly So on from the grains, we talk about legumes, which is sort of the related point that they are not as offensive as grains. They don't have as high levels of anti-nutrients that grains do, but they're also a high carbohydrate load for not as much nutritional value, certainly as a primal aligned plant or animal food. So they're a little more nutritious than grains and they have fewer anti-nutrients but they're still in the category of unnecessary to consume it's not earth-shattering if you decide to dip your vegetables in hummus now and then and enjoy that and don't have any adverse effects but especially for the very sensitive people with leaky gut uh, eliminating legumes as well as grains is advised and again you can do these reaction tests so we talk a little bit more about weed and some of the um Uh, popularized uh, topics in the best-selling book wheat belly with regard to how wheat has been genetically altered in recent times to uh, yield more crop out in the fields but also to be much more difficult to digest often have a detrimental effect on your brain health and your appetite center in your brain causing you to overeat because of the gliadin protein present in today's what they call dwarf wheat. So again, I told you it was a short module. That's pretty much the wrap-up where we um, finish talking about the grains and the negative effects, and then we go into uh, our exam. And in the module 5 exam, oh, there's, uh, there's only 23 questions, so it's one of the, the shorter ones, some pretty straightforward emphatic statements in the true-false, number 14 true or false legumes can be poisonous if you don't cook them so if you got a good read through and understood it you should be able to ace this quiz pretty easily and move on to really the final diet related module key concept number six fat and cholesterol are not your enemy and then we finish off with the two exercise key concepts and then generally speaking the action items especially with relation to the exams and also the length, are much less intimidating than uh, the key concept module. So really you're doing a ton of learning here early on and when you get into the fat and cholesterol module, we already know it can be a little intimidating because we're going into the science of the different uh, cholesterol molecules and what they mean in the body, the HDLs, the vldls that's very low density lipoprotein and how they convert into either large fluffy ldl or small dense ldl depending on the state of inflammation in your bloodstream and the level of triglycerides Um, so we don't hit it too hard but there's some really great drawings and the main attempt here is to get you to grasp these scientific concepts of the heart disease process and how it works in the cells and what happens to the immune system when it detects these uh, plaque formation on the walls of your arteries uh, in as simple a manner as possible so that you can really understand the oxidation and inflammation process of heart disease. And, you know, the basic steps are your small, dense LDL cholesterol, the dangerous stuff, potentially dangerous stuff, can get lodged into damage lining of your arterial cells. And the damage lining, the ECL, that's the endothelial cell layer, can become damaged by oxidative stress in the body. So once these molecules lodge and start causing trouble, uh, the immune response kicks in in with inflammation um, occurring in the the form of macrophages. These are uh, agents sent by the immune system over to deal with the uh, potential damage on the walls of your arteries. And when they're overwhelmed by this job, they convert into foam cells, and that's when a clot forms. And that's what we call plaque. So you have a clot forming on your endothelial cell layer, layer the wall of your artery. Um, oxidation occurs because blood's flowing through there, and then you get a stroke or a heart attack. Um, so we're talking about the true catalyst for heart disease in this module. And the module, by the way, is separated into the cholesterol discussion and then halfway through we get into the fat discussion so this is the role of cholesterol the very misunderstood role of cholesterol in the heart disease process and the true heart disease catalysts such as uh, chronically excessive insulin production high triglyceride levels in the bloodstream high cortisol from a highly stressful lifestyle and not enough hdl the scavenging agents that clean your bloodstream and purify it So we also talk about how important vitamin D is into the uh, cancer heart disease risk factor because of its role in supporting healthy cell division. And then we talk about some suggested blood tests, and there's more details in the Primal Blueprint 90-Day Journal that comes with your graduation package, but we talk about some of the more relevant blood tests than the basic ones that don't really... Uh, don't indicate the true factors of heart disease as well as looking at some of the inflammation markers and looking deeper into your uh, ratios such as triglycerides to HDL ratio, which Dr. Kate Shanahan and Dr. Ron Sinha, a couple of our uh, associates that helped us with the course, indicate is far more relevant than just looking at your total LDL cholesterol number. Um, So the fat section is kind of fun because we go back into the history of just why we've been brainwashed by the U.S. government and many other governments that follow suit, just why we've been brainwashed to think that fat was unhealthy. And it kind of happened by accident with some misinterpreted or poorly conducted scientific research and then government agencies falling in line and taking these basic assumptions like, well if you eat fat, you're going to get fat, which seems uh, logical on the surface, but is entirely distorted, but unfortunately has, you know, taken hold in conventional wisdom over the last few decades. So we look at the uh, atrocious evolution of food pyramids. Now it's, it's a plate. It's called Choose My Plate. The pyramid has evolved into a plate, and it's still giving... Um, flawed and uh, misleading information about healthy dietary habits. Um, proof of that being the uh, massive increases in obesity, cancer, heart disease in modern society, despite having all this knowledge and having these pyramids stuck in front of our face uh, since childhood. So, as a matter of fact, it's not the most lengthy module either. It's pretty tight, and we get we get through it good. Then we take a test. Fat and cholesterol are not your enemy. Again, only 23 questions in this test because it's pretty straightforward. And if you got the picture down, and we will ask you a few questions about the process. So it might be helpful to take notes or just really embed those graphics into your brain and then sit for this brief exam and hopefully uh, get a good, good result here. Um, so for example we ask about those ratios and what we talked about is what what is a healthy ratio for triglyceride to hdl according to the text Um, which is not one of the reasons that saturated fat has been maligned by conventional wisdom and then we put out several of the things that were conveyed in the text and you pick out the one that doesn't fit here's another true false question assessing ldl particle size is expensive and unnecessary true or false that kind of thing okay so got through the first key concepts and now we're on to um, key concept number seven which i would say is an easier read it's more straight talk just about the flawed notion that exercise relates to your body composition goals and in essence what happens is and finally you know research is supporting this there was a Time magazine cover story in 2013 called The Exercise Myth, and just saying point blank science shows that when you exercise, when you do a vigorous workout, you stimulate and increase an in appetite. It's called the compensation theory. And the compensation theory states that for all those calories that you faithfully burned during your spinning class at the gym or heading out and putting in the number of miles on the road or whatever you did, that's great. There's a lot of beneficial effects to exercise and diligent uh, fitness pursuits, of course, but it just doesn't relate directly to body fat reduction because you consume more calories as a consequence of that workout. And the, the deeper you get into this, The more chronic and strenuous your exercise program is the worse it looks in relation to reducing excess body fat because when the body is being constantly depleted by strenuous exercise with insufficient rest periods in between you get into uh your brain gets into a high appetite pattern to try to overcome that depletion of calories and energy every day so you tend to overeat when you're locked into a chronic exercise pattern. So with that um, premise stated, it falls in line. It follows that all this information we've been dispensed through the fitness magazines for the last few decades about how important it is to, uh, be consistent and put in this many calories burning and, and put that on your uh, uh, program, on your uh, exercise machine in the gym to find out that you you did get up to the 700 calorie level before you can step off. All of that is basically irrelevant and far less uh, concern than simply moderating the amount of insulin you produce in your diet to lose excess body fat. Now, That doesn't mean that uh, exercise is uh, not beneficial, but the main beneficial element of exercise is just about the movement. It's about getting up and countering the massive sedentary forces of modern life and moving more throughout daily life. Um, It's not enough to just go and put in a consistent workout every day. So those gym goers or those runners that do their three miles every morning and then head off into a long commute and a desk job are not protected from the health hazards of excessive sedentary periods and sedentary patterns in daily life. It's called the active couch potato syndrome. So as an active couch potato, you're, okay, you're possibly slightly better off than someone who's 100% sedentary. But if you sit for long periods of time in the workplace, uh, in commuting, and in your entertainment choices in the evening, you show the same risk factors in your blood as someone who's fully sedentary. So we talk a little bit about the importance of just getting up and moving and taking breaks. Um, Katie Bowman, who's a wonderful scientist and author that we're working with, on a new product, um, a comprehensive digital product called Don't Just Sit There. And it's sort of a solution to all the sitting forces that we experience in daily life. Um, She talks about how the main goals during your day should be movement and variation. So even beyond the popular stand-up desk movement where, oh, isn't it great, I'm gone from sitting at my desk to standing in one place at my desk all day, Katie states emphatically with a lot of science behind her that that is not a solution. And all you'll get from standing all day is you'll be a little more sore and stiff because you're standing instead of sitting. So if you can move and vary your positions at work, if you can walk around the block or take phone calls on the move or do anything you can to create a more varied workplace experience, including modifying your setup so that you can sit and stand and go back and forth, that will be a wonderful catalyst to Enjoying more health benefits and avoiding those active couch potato syndrome risk factors. So, once that's stated about the general everyday movement importance in daily life, we get into the particulars of aerobic exercise. And especially the distinction between aerobic exercise, aerobic is, the word means with oxygen, versus anaerobic exercise, that means without oxygen, and that's the high-intensity exercise where you're actually going along with insufficient oxygen to continue at that pace indefinitely. But aerobic exercise is very comfortably paced, Um, the preferred fuel source is fat, as opposed to as you get more and more high intensity more and more anaerobic you burn a greater percentage of glucose and a smaller percentage of fat both exercise both workouts obviously have their benefits but the important element here is when you're structuring your sustained cardiovascular exercise sessions most all of them should be in an aerobic heart rate zone so that you don't risk triggering The chronic patterns that occur when you exceed your aerobic limits and drift into anaerobic metabolism during these sustained workouts and we identify that as workouts that are conducted at a heart rate of 55 to 75 percent of your maximum heart rate and if you're not familiar with heart rate uh this is a very comfortable pace where you're entirely conversational you can talk the whole time without getting winded and it's nowhere near that uh no pain no gain straining uh essence that you get uh and it's very common for people to take their heart rate up and above and beyond the aerobic limit because they feel like that's the uh, key to getting an effective workout and the, the for many people especially the more devoted you are to fitness and the more regularly you exercise slowing down your pace and making sure that you're in that comfortable fat burning zone will give you a variety of benefits it'll prepare you for the more intense workouts that put the uh, you know the entire package together for total body fitness but you will be uh, free or limited on those risks of getting into a chronic pattern where you're burning too much sugar during the sustained workouts you come home craving sugar and feeling depleted and you get into this negative pattern rather than the refreshing and energizing experience of doing regular aerobic workouts which are easy to recover from, they're easy to do on a daily basis, of course walking or cruising on your bike uh, over to the farmer's market, all those things count as aerobic or uh, low level cardio sessions. So it's pretty easy to accomplish the the mandate to get two to five hours of uh, in total in a week of low level aerobic exercise, um, and as we talked about chronic. Uh, pops into many of the modules we get into detail here with the dangers and the drawbacks of chronic cardio as it relates to messing with your healthy fat metabolism promoting systemic inflammation chronic inflammation uh, chronic elevation or prolonged elevation of stress hormones which have a terrible effect on your immune function and also promote oxidative damage in the body over the long term and of course Uh, dramatically increased risk of injuries because you're pushing your body too hard and not getting enough rest Um, so as i mentioned that important element of exercising in the 55 to 75 percent fat burning zone well how do you know what that is you have to determine your maximum heart rate so we spend a little time uh, on ways that you can either estimate it with a pretty accurate calculation or actually go and conduct a maximum heart rate test of course with physician's clearance making sure that you have all the uh, all the bases covered before you go all out and check your heart rate at its very highest functioning Um, so we talk about the anti-aging benefits of exercising properly and avoiding those chronic patterns there's some amazing pictures in here of ageless wonders like herschel walker um Dara Torres, the swimmer that made the Olympic team at 41. And it's really exciting to see that when you slow down and emphasize low-level aerobic movement, just for the sake of movement, for the sake of enjoyment, and also to promote health, you experience not only fitness benefits, but metabolic benefits and anti-aging benefits. Um, So there you go with Key Concept 7 and the quiz because there are some numbers thrown throughout here, you're going to get hit with a few where it's asking you about those heart rate zones again. Uh, What's the name of the exercise zone between 75 and 85% of maximum heart rate is one of the questions. Um, We talk about some of those negative consequences of chronic exercise. And going in with some true-false questions that are pretty straightforward. Uh, For example, true or false... An unfit person will have a lower resting heart rate than an athlete because their heart is weaker. That kind of stuff. Only 24 questions again. So we did hit you hard on a couple modules, getting up there with uh, 47 questions, 45 questions. So we're kind of going in fits and spurts here. We're hitting you hard. And then the very next module is a shorter read and a much shorter examination. And we got one more key concept. It's module number eight. And then we get into the action items. And if you notice, one of the action items is about exercising primarily, move, lift, and sprint. And in the action items, that's when we get into workout specifics and suggested sprint sessions And all those kind of things, the primal essential movements and the progression exercises with video examples from Mark Sisson for each of the push-ups, pull-ups, squats, and planks, that's in the action items. So in this module, this is more of a philosophical module in setting the foundation for the primal blueprint fitness principles of integrating uh, low-level cardio with regular brief intense strength training sessions of assorted nature and occasional all-out sprints. So we get into why high-intensity workouts are so important for everyone to do and what kind of strength training workouts are the best. And for a hint, it's mostly personal preference, but we're talking about philosophical principles to adhere to not telling you what your trainer should take you through at the gym or that resistance bands are better than gym machines or that free weights are the best of all or any of that stuff. So personal preference, uh, as one post on Mark Stigley Apple put it, Mark said, what's the best workout for you? The one that you're going to do. Okay, so you're going to be exposed in a variety of different ways to possible strength training sessions if you like to get a trainer go to the gym that's great Um, if you want a very basic entry level point or if you are a trainer and want to bring a novice into the wonderful world of brief intense strength training sessions uh, start with the primal essential movements because they're super safe they're easy to do for everyone The techniques are so easy to learn, and even if you make a mistake and your push-up form is terrible, you're not going to blow out a joint like you might if you're fooling around with uh, heavy weights in the gym and you don't know what you're doing. So in the module, we get into uh, the benefits of the strength training and also of sprinting, especially with uh, some of the anti-aging benefits that we discussed earlier, where you get that pulse of adaptive hormones in the bloodstream from an all-out sprint, the ultimate primal workout. It also helps you uh, build new mitochondria in your cells. That's the energy producing agents in the cells. So you're better able to deal with general oxidative stress in daily life as an athlete, as a sprinter. And you have more mitochondria, more efficient, Uh, and better size so you can control inflammation better you can improve oxygen delivery throughout the body including to the brain just from doing regular sprints not to mention bone density and connective tissue strength Uh, and if you want to do low impact sprints those are fine too uh, if you have joint concerns and maybe building up someday to doing proper running sprints which have the most uh, metabolic benefits because of the weight-bearing nature of them so we talk about a little bit of science about the different fuel sources that are used when you do sprints of varying durations. So really quickly, um, the, the most explosive and the shortest effort, like under eight seconds of maximum effort, the energy source for those are actually uh, pure ATP inside the muscle cell. So it's not something you can eat. <laughs> it's just uh, an internal energy source. If you go from eight to 30 seconds, you're actually using the fuel called lactate. A lot of people confuse this with uh, the term lactic acid. That's when lactate builds up in your bloodstream from high intensity efforts and you can't clear it fast enough and so your blood becomes acidic. But it's an actually an excellent fuel for high intensity exercise is called lactate. And then as you get over 30 seconds, you start burning glucose. Again, for an all out effort of 30 seconds up to 2 minutes, that's a pretty much of a pure glycolytic, pure glucose burning effort. And then as you go over two minutes, you actually start to recruit um, some aerobic metabolism. Even though a two-minute effort is quite intense, um, it's not really considered a sprint. So when we're talking about sprints and, and suggesting sprint workouts, we're really talking about efforts that, you know, maybe as short as eight seconds all the way up to 20 seconds. And anything over that, you're sort of getting into a different sort of Uh, workout goal than a pure all-out sprint so that's the good news the workouts are hard especially if you're unfamiliar with sprinting you're going to be pushing yourself much harder but they're over with quickly so it's kind of fun and it's a great new challenge to add or bring into a trainer client relationship if you've been hitting the other types of workouts uh, to excess so we talk about the benefits of functional fitness as opposed to simply going in the gym and building up muscle and looking good that's fine but functional fitness puts it all together where you actually look good but you have some efficiencies with that muscle mass where you're not just packing on muscle mass for no reason but you have a good score in things like your power to weight ratio so how much power do you have relative to your own body weight quick example doing a pull-up so if you have a big strong buff guy who weighs 220 pounds um How many pull-ups can that person do? Well, he's going to have to take his entire 220 pounds and get it up over the bar. So if you can take a 127-pound gymnast, might be able to outdo that far more powerful person because we're comparing power-to-weight ratio rather than just raw power, where the biggest person's always going to win that battle. And we'll be testing you on that kind of stuff, so that's kind of fun. We also spend some time in this module talking about correct scheduling of high intensity workouts because it's very important when you're pushing your body and asking for a peak performance effort you can't just do it uh in a robotic manner just because it's tuesday is your day to sprint you have to include an intuitive decision making process into the picture here and the times when you are meant to push your body to the maximum effort is when you're 100% rested and motivated for such an effort. So if you're heading out for a proposed sprint workout or even a high-intensity strength training session and things don't feel right at the outset, maybe you have a small sign of unsatisfactory immune function like you're feeling a little hot or you have a tiny scratchy throat or you just feel lower than normal energy or motivation levels. These are very important signs to pay attention to and to alter your scheduling pattern to make sure that the high-intensity workouts fall in line with days that you're feeling fully rested and motivated to go deliver a peak performance effort and for those of you who are afraid of backing off and departing from your rigid robotic schedule where you sprint once every eight days and you do two strength workouts a week faithfully and so on and so forth throughout the end of time um, there's some interesting content in here about the effects of tapering and specifically how amazing it is that you can drastically reduce your exercise intensity and frequency of workouts for lengthy periods of time. Uh, Two months in one of the prominent studies from Dr. Costell at Ball State University, if you do half of your normal workout routine for week after week after week, But you still do some it's not total rest because it's easy to detrain when you sit in bed obviously Um, but if you just do an approximation of your normal workout routine you will be as good or better in a peak performance test uh, at the duration of that tapering period and elite athletes pay great attention to tapering and they know that when they start to back off of their normal training routine in advance of a big event like the Olympics or a championship event, they can expect a greatly improved performance and absolutely no reduction in performance just from taking it easy for uh, weeks on end. Um, We also get more detailed here about um, fasting, which we talked about in earlier modules, but as it relates directly to intense exercise and how to really uh, balance that carefully and optimally so you don't suffer from the negative effects which in the case of an athlete would be waking up the following day and not feeling recovered because they haven't uh, successfully restored glycogen that's been burned through high intensity workouts. So intense exercise and fasting has some great benefits especially for the anti-aging and the adaptive hormones but you have to be careful how you do it and Yes, you can get into a scientific approach for this, but uh, another way to do this is if you experience hunger sensations in the aftermath of an intense workout, that's when it's a good time to end your fast and pig out on a nice highly nutritious meal. So it really is as simple as that, as your hunger will guide you very well and very successfully to enjoy maximum benefits from pairing fasting with intense exercise, but not digging you into a hole where you get into a depletion pattern. Uh, We also talk about how intense exercise relates to longevity and improving your organ reserve, which is a concept talking about the functional capacity of all your vital organs, your heart, your kidneys, your lungs, uh, to function beyond baseline levels. So if you have good organ reserve, if you have a good reserve amount of function in your organs, that correlates with longevity. Obviously, as you start to um, lose that organ reserve in the classic paradigm of aging until one day you're bedridden and you're too weak to get out of bed and your lungs are too weak to cough up Uh, the phlegm from the pneumonia and you expire so the opposite of that would be to really build your muscles with functional fitness and your your systems your cardiovascular system and thereby maintaining an extremely adept set of organs that can function well beyond resting if necessary or if called upon Uh, so when you jump down to the ground and uh haul off 50 push-ups, you're asking all sorts of organs to function beyond uh, resting normal level. And when you do that in a properly uh, organized manner of balancing stress and rest, you're building up your organs so you can expect a long and healthy life and be able to weather things like illnesses or setbacks, including surgeries and things like that, uh, successfully. And of course, the module's mostly focused on the benefits of high-intensity exercise, but That can also be playful. It doesn't have to be a grind. You don't have to be in there counting reps in the gym or uh, timing with a stopwatch every single thing you do. And if Mark Sisson writes often about uh, his uh, ultimate frisbee sessions on the weekend are his main form of sprinting and his main form of play. And believe me, I participated and it's a definitely a high intensity workout, but it's so fun and you're so engrossed in the game that you forget that you just also delivered an excellent sprint workout. So we talk in detail about the important role that play has in our structured modern lives. And the importance of getting out there and exploring the limits of your body and trying new challenges. Um, Also, it's a wonderful thing to engage the mind in something different than your normal everyday rote routine of important daily responsibilities. Uh, There's a lot of research about play. Stuart Brown, probably the world's foremost expert on play and the author of a book called Play, how it shapes the brain, opens the imagination, and invigorates the soul, talks about how play uh, promotes the development and maintenance of a cognitively fluid mind, a nice problem-solving, open-minded, think-out-of-the-box mind. And it's something that humans have needed and has driven human evolution for tens of thousands of years. And some of the scientists discovered A major breakthrough, or they call it a major breakthrough in the evolutionary timeline around 60,000 years ago, when the cognitively fluid mind of the human took a great leap forward and enabled a massive increase in longevity as well as uh, an increase in the population of the globe. And they attribute that directly to the play that has been part of our ancestors' lives for so long because it helps them uh, process. The what-if scenarios that happen in real life such as in the classic example of battling a predator they can play around and test out new techniques to throw the spear or whatever ambush techniques in a playful setting without the life or death consequences so they can hone their skills Um, and then the module ends up with um, some of the basics about warming up and stretching uh, especially the need to avoid the static stretching that can often uh, weaken muscles, and just do more emphasis on dynamic stretching and things where you're using your body weight to create the stretch rather than force the stretch. Also in here is um, a little discussion about what muscle soreness really is, delayed onset muscle soreness, how it happens, um, what's really going on in your body, how to uh, properly recover from it, what are ways that can help you um optimize your ability to bounce back from muscle soreness some of the misconceptions along those lines too especially as it relates to icing which is now being second guessed as a injury or a soreness healing technique and possibly although it does instantly relieve the pain um from a sore or injured joint or muscle it could actually delay the healing process so there's some fascinating commentary in there um from one of our respected associates, Kelly Starrett, great Primal Con presenter, and his new takes that he's promoting along with many other exercise scientists, that movement is probably the number one way to heal injuries and that icing should be second-guessed except as an immediate treatment to an acute injury. Very interesting stuff, groundbreaking stuff. Um, So the quiz for key concept number eight maximum fitness gains can be made in minimal time with high-intensity workouts. We have another pretty short one with 27 questions. Um, We're going to ask you a little bit about that muscle soreness and about organ reserve. Um, Some of the acronyms, we'll uh, see if you can remember those. Not too bad overall. I'm asking a little bit about some of those fuel sources and some of the recommendations for scheduling and workout frequencies. So when you see things of note that you might want to note down, that'll help you on this test. And boy, congratulations, because you've made it through the meat of the course after you finish the first eight modules on the key concepts. And then we go into the action item modules, numbers 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, corresponding with the five action items in the Primal Blueprint 21-Day Total Body Transformation. Okay, so now that you have the very lengthy and informative key concepts under your belt, the eight key concepts, we have five more modules which correspond to the five action items in the Primal Blueprint 21-Day total body transformation. So generally, these are uh, shorter reading modules. The information is more straightforward. A lot of it is list related, such as um, the spectrum rankings and the first category. The first action item is called eliminate standard American diet foods. So we just go through sort of the kitchen pantry purge of the food categories and individual items that you want to Uh, eliminate from your home or at least strictly minimize intake in many cases in favor of a primal approved alternative. So the first category we talk about is grains, and we have a quick overview of the health objections of grains, the lectins, gluten, and phytates, uh, the excess insulin production caused by grain-based meals. And then we get into the list of grain-based foods. And it's important to have a good comprehensive understanding of just all the different foods and categories that are grain-based, especially when many people fail to recognize that. So obviously when you have bread and rice and pasta... Those are well known as grain-based foods, but all the little permutations and manufactured items. So in the bread and flour products category, you have your baguettes, crackers, croissants, danishes, donuts, scones, graham crackers, pizza, pretzels, muffins, rolls, tortillas, triscuits, wheat thins, rye, sourdough, scones, and so forth. All the breakfast foods, of course, everything in the great American breakfast, like all your different dry cereals, even your nice healthy granolas, Cream of wheat, oatmeal, pancakes, waffles, French toast. Those are all grain based, high insulin stimulating breakfasts. The chips, your corn chips, potato chips, and tortilla chips. Uh, the various cooking grains like amaranth, barley, bulgur, couscous, millet, and rye. A lot of people mention quinoa as sort of an approved grain alternative because it's actually categorized as a chenopod, not a grain. Like in the beet family, it's got good protein and minimal objections. With anti nutrients. So, of course, you have your pastas in the grain category, um, your rice, except for wild rice, which is again categorized as not a grain but a grass and a good source of supplemental carbohydrates because it has a lot of nutritional value and minimal anti nutrient objections. Um, The puff snacks are especially objectionable because of their expanded surface area giving a higher glycemic response. So Cheetos, Goldfish, Pirates, Booty, Popcorn, Rice Cakes, things like that. So we get through the Grain category. Then we have the Baking Ingredients category, where we're talking about the various powders and sweeteners and mixes that you use for baking. And the great news here is that the Primal Paleo Cookbooks have all kinds of great recipes for your favorites, Uh, using primal approved substitute ingredients. So if you want to go make your pancakes or your oatmeal, there's all kinds of creative primal paleo recipes that can still give you that pleasure of the meal regimens, the meal traditions. Then we get into the beverage category. And this stuff is pretty simple when you think about it. Um, There's not too many things that are really approved to consume without stimulating an insulin response waters fantastic herbal tea coffee is approved when used moderately and sensibly but all the other mixes and mixed drinks sports drinks the designer coffees which are so popular now all the energy drinks that you find in the minimart convenience store all the fruit flavored drinks like Arizona and Hansons and Snapple these are all basically just sugar bombs that stimulate a huge insulin response and they also do not contribute to satiety because you're drinking your calories in a liquid form. Even the non-dairy milks, if you look on a label for almond milk, rice milk, soy milk, there's a lot of carbohydrate content in those, and that's a high insulin response. Of course, sodas, sports drinks, things like that, sweetened cocktails, we talked a little bit about that in the alcohol section, um, and even the vegetable juices. So if you go and get that wonderfully fresh-squeezed, garlic kale apple carrot ginger juice yes it has a wonderful delivery of high nutritional value and high antioxidants but all in all the primal stance is that we prefer you consume your vegetable calories in whole food form rather than juice liquid form because you do lose some nutritional value and you have a quick glucose spike when you consume that vegetable juice because you've taken out all the fiber that would slow that glycemic response. Um, So there's some commentary about how those liquid calories don't contribute to satiety and promote obesity and metabolic syndrome trends. We also have the condiment section, and in the case of condiments, a little bit's okay. Obviously, if you use a little barbecue sauce on your steak, um, you're not consuming a ton of calories from that barbecue sauce, but even in the category of condiments, you can find ones that are produced more responsibly and stay away from those that are made with high fructose corn syrup and other objectionable agents. We have the dairy products category, so we know that Primal Approved Dairy, the high-fat uh, choices in the dairy category, preferably raw and unpasteurized, are fine. And when you're talking about the more common low-fat or non-fat dairy products, the fruit-sweetened yogurts and sugar-sweetened dairy drinks, um, those can be on the elimination on the kitchen pantry purge. And we have some good discussion about some of the health concerns with low fat and non-fat dairy compared to the health benefits of high fat dairy next category fast food obviously the stuff that's served up in quick order in all the fast food joints is very distantly removed from the original source of healthy nutritious foods uh, the fats and oils section is where we again get into some of the objections of polyunsaturated fatty acids and where those objectionable oils are contained in food supplies. Obviously, the deep fried and the packaged products that contain partially hydrogenated fats are off limits. All the buttery spreads and sprays and all the vegetable seed oils that deliver the most of the poof of calories in the standard American diet. Uh, Then we have a lengthy discussion of the different choices of fish. Um, Some farm fish are just fine to consume, such as farm shellfish, because their environment is very similar to their environment in the natural setting in the ocean. But many farm fish, especially the most popular farm fish, the farm Atlantic salmon, which represents about 90% of all the salmon you see in the market and in the restaurants of the of the america and the western world that is highly objectionable and should not be consumed so your choice should be wild salmon wild canned salmon is affordable and a much better choice than the predominantly found farmed atlantic salmon Then we get into the legumes category, and already mentioned briefly in the earlier modules about where we stand on this philosophically, why the carbohydrate load makes it not really worth going out and looking for legumes to consume in your diet. Then we have a meat category, so when you're eliminating the objectionable meats and knowing the distinction between the highly processed meats and the healthy meats that you get from naturally raised animals. So those deli-cured smoke meats that are containing preservatives and nitrates, um, the fried and breaded meats, or the meals that are prepared where the meats weigh de- deep down inside those chicken McNuggets, but all the other objectionable agents make them off the list. We also have some talk about all the various processed foods and snacks and even the seemingly healthy energy bars or responsibly prepared energy foods that are quite natural in their in their um, comp- compilation, but they still are a high carbohydrate load and a heavy insulin hit. So overall, the goal would be to transition out of that snacking pattern, even if the snacks are relatively healthy and natural, and instead just turn on your fat-burning genes so that you don't require a constant dose or a little topping off the tank of calories throughout your day. Uh, Then we have the sweets category, which goes without saying. um, We want to stay away from all the uh, sugars and sugary sweets and beverages. So the exam in action item number one, that would be module number 9 now. 32 questions, pretty straightforward. A lot of basic true-false where you're just retaining information from uh, the, the coursework. So uh, here's a, an example of a, uh, a true-false. All dairy products contain lactose and casein except for ghee. True or false? And in the multiple choice section, uh, a thorough reading of the material... We'll make these pretty straightforward. For example, fructose is metabolized by which of the following? Your stomach epithelium cells, your liver cells, your pancreatic cells, kidney cells, or intestinal cells. Things like that. Hopefully pass that in short order and jump over to action item number two, shop, cook, and dine primarily. So this would be module number 10. And here we just talk about the different strategies you can use for shopping on the internet, the farmer's markets, the co-ops, just finding the best resources in your area. Very straightforward information. Um, And then the different labelings, such as the distinction between USDA certified organic, and all the various other labels that have much less regulation and meaning behind them. Then we talk about some cooking strategies, how to set up your kitchen, um, getting all your supplies in line so you can easily make meals, uh, freeze or refrigerate extra portions and have that to tap into. So there's always something attractive to consume in the home. Uh, Then we talk about dining out and some of the categories where you can find uh, nutritious foods such as fresh mex in the fast food category many of these restaurants are now showing uh, real devotion to preparing all fresh content on their uh, choice bars or whatever they're however they're situated um, so you can get some good options even with sit-down restaurants what the best strategy is if you are finding yourself in a typical all-american family restaurant um, so again a pretty easy quiz compared to some of the heavyweights um, we have 27 questions, and it's just talking about uh, suggestions for shopping. Here's a true-false question. Co-ops are typically responsive to special requests. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we deserve a softy once in a while after grinding through those first, first nine modules. Then we get to action item number three, module 11, understanding the spectrum of best-to-worst food choices. And this is a a lengthy module because we go into great detail with the rankings of all the different food categories so i wouldn't say it's um, cognitively challenging to get some of these concepts like you might compare to the talk about cholesterol and some of the more um, scientific concepts that we covered earlier but we're talking about the various benefits of the different vegetable categories and the color of vegetable and how that correlates to certain health benefits Um, always offering a spectrum on each type of food category so the vegetable spectrum where locally grown in-season vegetables would be number one and then getting stuff that it's out of season and flown in from a distant origin would be bottom on the vegetable rankings Um, same with fruit there's a little bit of uh, selectivity necessary these days because we're presented with highly cultivated overly sweetened fruit that is not very similar to the wild fruit found in grok's time and we can get them year round so when we go in to a costco in january and see these giant blackberries uh, offered up for sale that's a little bit different than picking them off the vine on the uh, back roads of oregon in the summertime when they're ripe they taste better when you have a natural product and it's also monitoring your overall carbohydrate intake again because we consume so much fructose and so many forms of carbs in the diet that we want to be a little bit selective with fruit long story short the goal would be to emphasize your consumption of in-season fruits and finding fruits that are high on the antioxidant score and low on the glycemic score so that would be berries is the best fruit of all. Obviously, in the summertime growing season, you can have Adam and then moderating your intake of the High glycemic, low antioxidant fruits, which are some of the tropical fruits, for example, mangoes, papayas, pineapples, and consuming those all winter would be possibly going a little overboard and taking some liberties. That would put you into, again, with that carbohydrate curve, the overall carbohydrate intake and requisite amount of insulin production. We talk about herbs and spices and all the antioxidant and nutritional benefits there. Then we go into the rankings of the meat sources. And how the local pasture-raised is even ranked higher than certified organic because of the benefits of being raised locally and having access to a natural diet out there on the grasses in the fields. Uh, then we talk about the fish, and again, it's a it's a pretty detailed discussion to talk about the distinctions between fish that are raised and caught responsibly with some of the objectionable types of fish, such as those at the very top of the food chain, those caught with unsustainable or environmentally harmful methods, and then finally the many objections to uh, farmed fish, as well as uh, several choices of farm fish that are okay. Then we talk about eggs and how much better pasture-raised eggs with chickens eating their natural diet. But even so, keeping the perspective that even the lowest ranked egg, which would be a conventionally raised chicken from a chicken coop that was fed a grain based diet and not afforded much access to the outdoors, is still a far superior nutritional product to anything in the grain category. Then we talk about nuts and seeds, all the nutritional benefits they offer, some of the considerations that have come up for primal aligned people worried about their omega-6 to omega-3 ratio or just trying to lose excess body fat and possibly overdoing it on nuts because they're such a convenient and easy snack but they're also calorically dense and when you're trying to tap into stored body fat and burn it sometimes you can consider uh, some moderation and selectivity in your nut intake. Um, Then we get into the healthy fats and oils and all the different saturated or highly saturated fats you can use for cooking some of the best choices for eating um, and ranking everything of what to favor such as when you're talking about extra virgin olive oil Pretty well known that's the best kind of olive oil, but this is a term that's loosely regulated, and a lot of the foreign imports are old. They're possibly overprocessed or not entirely as pure as one might think, and so the goal with olive oil is to find domestic sources of first cold-pressed-only extra-virgin olive oil. That means the olive has only been pressed once, and without adding any heat for a much more favorable nutritional benefit then we have a nice commentary about beverages especially the talk about water and how this conventional wisdom about hydrating in some type of regimented manner such as eight glasses per day or drinking 32 ounces per hour of exercise all these things are just conjecture And the truth is that our thirst mechanism works wonderfully to regulate our water consumption, and our kidneys work very well to regulate our hydration levels in the body, even in the presence of fluctuating uh, fluid consumption from the diet. Um, So more talk about dairy and the benefits of dairy and the conjugated linoleic acid that's found in high-fat dairy. So that's why the full-fat dairy is getting such a high ranking. And going over and talking about the various dairy products, then getting into the dark chocolate ins and outs of finding the high percentage cacao dark chocolate for all the antioxidant benefits and the minimal uh, objection as far as insulin response. We talked some about alcohol in an earlier module, and we go into more detail here about how alcohol might inhibit your fat metabolism, your body fat reduction goals, and even how the often touted benefits that you hear about the resveratrol antioxidant that's found in red wine and grapes and also in berries and dark chocolate might be a little bit exaggerated. Although there are antioxidant benefits from consuming alcohol, from consuming red wine, you don't really need to go looking for it on the grounds that you need those antioxidant benefits that you can easily get from consuming other foods. There's a whole section about the best primal snacks, a lot of good suggestions, and a section on nutritional supplements um, and the certain categories that might be very useful, even for a primal aligned, super health conscious eater to counteract some of the challenges of getting all the nutrition you need in hectic modern life and sometimes uh, less than optimal food choices such as a probiotic supplement which will help you build up that healthy intestinal flora when it's been challenged by assorted things like um, exposure to germs in modern life lack of sufficient sleep jet travel or other stressors that can knock your gut out of healthy balance and then you can give it a quick boost in a concentrated form with billions of microorganisms in a good probiotic supplement there's a little bit of commentary here about the 80 percent rule and understanding that the spirit of the 80% rule, or often called the 80-20 rule, is not to shoot for 80% compliance and then see where you fall. And if you fall short, then all of a sudden you're down at 60-40. But rather the goal is to strive to consume uh, the foods at the highest end of the spectrum and and consume primal approved foods as the uh, entire compilation of your diet and if you happen to falter here and there have less than optimal choices you can accept 80 percent success rate that's a lot different than shooting for 80 percent. so we have uh, a summary of all the rankings and the most important dietary changes or primal alignments you can make probably number one is to ditch the bad fats for example and emphasize healthy fats those kind of suggestions and then you're done with module number three And you're ready to take a fun and straightforward exam. Uh, For example, a multiple choice question, which fruit or vegetable is least objectionable to purchase in conventional form? An avocado, blueberry, kale, mushroom, or A&C? So stuff like that should be pretty easy to knock out and get going into the exercise action items. So we go to action item number four. This is module number 12. Exercise primally. Move, lift, and sprint. So when we have key concept number seven and eight talking about the philosophy and the science behind frequent low-level movement, how exercise is not contributing directly to weight loss, and also the importance of doing brief intense exercise, we now are free in this module to get into some details and some actual workout routines and suggestions. So when we get into lift heavy things, we present the primal essential movements, the four for the simplest and most effective strength training exercises ever known to mankind, push-ups, pull-ups, squats, and planks. And the best thing about these is that they're they're great for all fitness levels, all abilities. Even a um, very accomplished, athletic, fit person can mix and match these types of workouts with primal essential movements as a base especially when you don't have access to a fancy fancy gym and still get a great workout but for the entry level we have a series of progression exercises so if you can't do a single push-up can't do a single pull-up a client whatever level they're at they're just starting out you can start with the very basic progressions and still get uh, an effective workout challenging the same muscle groups as regular push ups do. So, obviously, a push up off an inclined surface, such as putting your hands on a table or a chair rather than on the ground, will allow you to complete those movements uh, at less degree of difficulty than being on the ground. Similarly, with pull ups, you can do chair assisted pull ups where your feet are anchored on a chair and you attempt to raise your body to the bar with your arms but use the chair for as, as much as you need to get your chin over the bar and still complete five, six, or ten uh, sequences of the workout that are drawing on the lats and all the great muscle groups that pull-ups do. So we detail all the different progression exercises, all the counts you should strive for. So if you are able to do, for example, a wall push-up and you can get up to 30 reps of that, then you can progress up to the next level of progression exercise. There are also videos that show the entire progression that Mark Sisson filmed for all four primal essential movements. So a lot of great content on that, just getting that uh, very comfortable, being able to d- deliver or conduct your own primal essential movement workout. And we get into sprinting. It's important to talk a lot about um, proper technique for running, and for cycling, and also proper warm-up sequences to make sure that you have a safe workout and your body, your joints and muscles are primed for giving this all-out maximum effort. So there's photographs, there's videos, and it'll take you through an excellent warm-up and technique instruction session until we get into an assortment of different sprint workout suggestions. Um, not only running, but cycling or using resistance such as hill repeats or stair workouts, and also uh, workouts on cardio machines and doing the Tabata interval type training. So you're done reading action item number four. You go into the exam, multiple choice. What is not a necessary attribute of optimal squatting form? A, tracking knees in alignment with your toes. B, keeping your feet flat on the ground. C, lowering until your thighs are parallel to the ground then raising up d rotating knees and quads outward like you're screwing legs into the ground or e chest facing forward so obviously someone coming in with good fitness knowledge could take a guess and probably uh, do pretty well on these tests but we all also are trying to make sure that you got through the coursework and retained a lot of it Uh, Here's a true-false question. Sprinters should try to impart as little force as possible upon each foot strike to continue moving forward as fast as possible. True or false? And finally, we get to action item number five, module number 13, slow life down. And guess what? This is the longest module of the course. It's a wonderful discussion of all different ways to balance stress and rest, pursue nurturing, uh, fun stress-relieving activities, uh, how to get your um, diet, exercise, and basic lifestyle elements in order. So in terms of exercise, we're talking about how to cultivate intuitive skills and just going into some topics that were beyond the mechanics, the nuts and bolts covered in the other modules. Um, using a training log in the proper realm where you can guide yourself and balance between your energy levels your motivation levels and your level of general everyday health and the degree of difficulty with your workouts then we talk in detail about the tech challenges of hectic modern life and the excessive amount of digital stimulation that we face in everyday life all are distractible Forces that come even during the workday when we're sitting at our desk and opening up. uh, Studies show that we switch windows 37 times an hour, uh, switch computer windows, and furthermore, that we're distracted from focusing on a single peak cognitive task about once every three minutes in a typical office environment and the damage that this causes to our brain and how it elevates our stress level. And so some tips and techniques about how to streamline your experience of exposure to digital stimulation in your life. And that's not just uh, news and information and uh, celebrity gossip websites, Facebook, Twitter, all these things that we have a tendency toward distractibility for, but how to discipline yourself to unplug and customize and prioritize information and take disciplined, uh, regular breaks throughout the day because your brain is only really capable of focusing on peak cognitive tasks for around 20 minutes at a time. And then you require a little bit of a break, a little bit of a change of venue, getting up and walking around. And if you don't, if you try to power away and go for hours and hours sitting in one spot, uh, attempting to work on the same type of task or topic, you are going to distract yourself anyway in a variety of different creative ways, such as drifting over to a funny YouTube video that someone sends you a link to. Then we get into some social topics, and if you read The Primal Connection, you'll be familiar with some of this material about how we form our intimate circles and our social circles in an ideal manner so that we spend most of our social time and energy on our closest friends loved ones and family rather than trying to extend out too far beyond our cognitive capacity to nurture meaningful reciprocative relationships which happens today because of the explosion of social media and superficial social relationships not to say those are categorically bad but how to properly balance your engagement with uh your facebook twitter and uh, distant following with being interpersonal and present for the rich social experiences that you can have uh in daily life in your personal life um so going on with all through the social benefits we dig into the topic of sleep and that's one reason why this module runs on at good length is because it's so much to say and it's so important to talk about um optimal sleeping habits optimal sleeping environment some of the science of sleep and what your body is actually doing when it's cycling through uh, the lighter and the deeper phases of sleep and what the restoration benefits of that also talking in detail about the benefits of napping and especially with aligning your sleep and wake cycles more closely or as close as possible as you can to the rising and the setting of the sun, our circadian rhythm. Um, We mentioned that briefly in another module, but this is where we really get in deep and help you get focused on developing optimal sleeping habits and optimal sleeping environments. And quick hint, the main or the biggest change you can make, the biggest benefit you can have is to minimize your exposure to artificial light and digital stimulation after dark. That is the major element that's throwing us out of optimal sleep cycling and feeling rested and energized when we wake up every morning. And of course the long term repercussions of getting inadequate sleep are are huge. They're right up there with consuming a poor diet. Finally we get into some of the aspects of play, including some of the science of play um, and how it helps You perform peak cognitive tasks and maintain a refreshed and positive outlook uh, for your core daily responsibilities in life. So the importance of play and the different kinds of play that you can engage in, including primal thrills, we call them, which are things that elicit an adrenaline rush. Yes, those are allowed. We're not talking about doing crazy dangerous stuff like racing your motorcycle at 110 miles an hour down the interstate. Although, if you could guarantee my safety, I'd love to try something like that. But we're talking about staying within normal and safe boundaries of reasonable challenges, but still doing things that push you beyond your limits and take you outside of comfortable, highly contained daily life. Then we discuss in detail the benefits of interacting with nature and actually spending time outdoors in a natural setting. It's good for all your senses Um, you restore and refresh the areas of the brain responsible for processing emotions. And there's all kinds of science now backing the good common sense, deep down sense that we all have to get out there and spend some time in broad, open, natural settings where you get fresh air, sunlight, and an expanded perspective from, or to balance, Was facing you every day in your uh, confined office environment your commute and the hours of time that we spend indoors in confinement inside our homes Uh, even the benefits of being near water or having your feet connected with the earth a movement known as earthing or grounding um, the generation of negative ions that are present in high factors high amounts Uh, in natural settings or where there's rushing water, wind, or bright sunlight. Then we talk about the importance of adequate sun exposure. So as you can see, we're going through the Primal Blueprint uh, 10 laws uh, built into this action item where we talk about sleep We talk about play and now talking about sunlight and the importance of maintaining healthy vitamin D levels, some of the misconceptions about the dangers of sun exposure and the importance of exposing large skin surface areas of your body to the sun on a regular basis to allow you to manufacture and then store optimum levels of vitamin D year-round. Because in fact, you can only manufacture vitamin D for a percentage of the year when the sun's rays are strong enough, the intensity of the sun is strong enough at your latitude, and obviously it varies greatly by all kinds of different variables such as the reflectiveness of the ground surface uh, whether you have air pollution what elevation you're at because high altitudes have more intense uv radiation um, your skin pigment of course is a major variable so we go through some of these calculations to help you understand what is the best way to obtain optimal sun exposure for vitamin d and also by the way how little diet contributes to the vitamin d question even if you eat a fantastic primal aligned diet it's only a small fraction in comparison to uh, getting optimal sun exposure for that period of the year that you can Um, the final section is just about slowing life down the title of the module and how we're so inclined and we're so programmed to move at an accelerated pace that we forget the Cravings of our bodies and of our genes to have a lot of downtime and a lot of quiet reflection where we're doing nothing. We're not listening to uh, something emanating from our smartphone. We're just sitting and gazing off into nature and recalibrating and refreshing for all the challenges and excitement and stimulation that we face in everyday life. So, whew, that was uh, action item number five. The quiz is going to be lengthy because the reading is so lengthy, but it's a nice 45-question challenge to get you through and up to graduation level at this course. Uh, So we have like a true-false question. I gave this away during the talk. True-false, a recommended primal thrill is a challenge that's beyond your current abilities and includes an element of danger. Another multiple-choice question, who is most likely to need a vitamin D supplement? an African-American living above the 49th parallel, anyone living at the equator, those who don't like to eat oily cold water fish, those who burn easily in the sun. So stuff like that. Um, Again, there's a lot of information in Action Item 5, Module Number 13, but it's straightforward and it's pretty easy to retain when you have that uh, big picture overview of uh, the primal blueprint laws and all the other information in the modules. So when you take that final quiz and you pass the quiz you will reach a congratulations page where we ask you to provide your t-shirt size and your shipping address so we can prepare your kit of materials to celebrate your achievement. Also on that page is access to the link where you can build your certified expert profile. And if you haven't uh, checked out that page, it's pretty cool where you have the uh, directory of all the other certified experts. You can put in a little blurb about yourself. If you're trying to solicit clients, that's great. You can make it known there. And if you're just an enthusiast and not interested in uh, the business aspects, you can still uh, you know greet all the other certified experts and engage with them, let them know what you're all about, where you're from, and hopefully make some good connections there. So thank you so much for listening to the details of the Primal Blueprint Expert Certification course. As always, we're here to help you as you proceed through the course and you have any challenges or questions that come up. So we look forward to hearing from you. We also sincerely appreciate your feedback on how we can make this course better or any suggestions that you have along those lines. So have a great day. This is Brad Kern signing off. For the Primal Blueprint Expert Certification.
1: Hey, Primal Podcast listeners. Have you been wanting and waiting to take your health or your clients to peak levels? Then it's time to. E-books, digital books, and video instruction from Primal Blueprint author, Mark Sisson. Graduates are listed online in our Certified Expert Directory to enhance their credibility in the evolutionary health world. Register for the certification program today at PrimalBlueprint.com and gain immediate access to the course materials and educational library.